So, as Graham has said, we're well into our series on the practices that we engage in together as Christians. And we've looked so far at meeting together and singing together and explored a bit about how we do that, why we do that, and how it builds us all up. And today we're looking at eating together. For a more typical church, this uh, practice would not be anywhere near as high as on the list as it is for Renew. One of our distinctives is that we have made eating together a very regular practice, perhaps even a fine art. I don't need to uh, persuade you as to its benefits, I'm sure you're all aware of that, but we can explore why it's such a potent practice for Christians and perhaps look at some of the ways that we can make it even more our own and even more powerful as a way of sharing the grace of God. But first, let's read the passage that I've chosen as the primary passage for today. It's a bit of a strange one. Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 to 14. Jesus also told them other parables. He said, The kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a king who prepared a great wedding feast for his son. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servants to notify those who were invited. But they all refused to come. So he sent other servants to tell them, The feast has been prepared The bulls and fattened cattle have been killed and everything is ready. Come to the banquet. But the guests he had invited ignored them and went their own way. One to his farm, another to his business. Others seized the messages and insulted them and killed them. The king was furious and he sent out his army to destroy the murderers And burn their town. And he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, and the guests I invited aren't worthy of honor, not to mention that they're all dead. Now go out to the street corners and invite everyone you see. So the servants brought in everyone, everyone they could find, good and bad alike. And the banquet hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to meet the guests, he noticed a man who wasn't wearing the proper clothes for the wedding. Friend, he asked, how is it that you are here without wedding clothes? But the man had no reply. Then the king said to his aides, bind his hands and his feet and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now, this is a challenging parable. Anyone who thinks that Jesus is all sweetness and light has obviously never read this parable, or, to be honest, the Gospels at all. This parable starts with a declaration that the kingdom of heaven is like this and it ends with the bleak despair of hell where people grind and gnash their teeth, the outer darkness, 
and the stark proclamation that many are called but few are chosen. It's no coincidence, though, that there is a feast at the centre of this story. And as the story makes clear, feasts cannot be dismissed as inconsequential. Whether you feel entitled to them or have them unexpectedly foisted on you. In the story, the feast is clearly a great symbol and practice of unity. And when such unity is rejected, there are costs. Even today, we can understand the social costs of, of despoiling a wedding party. It actually was the theme of a, an episode of She-Hulk couple of weeks ago just so that you know that it's it's part of the common popular culture at the very least you are most likely to permanently lose friends over such an action if not worse so how did feasts come to have this key place in society how did sharing food together come to be so central more central than dance or debate more unifying than trade or travel. To understand that, we must look to the core building blocks of eating together, of feasts, food and those who eat it. And to understand those things, we must travel back, back, far back to the beginning of time. So let's go back there. And what we'll find is that food is a gift from God. In the very beginning, he gave food to humanity. In the first chapter of Genesis, God said, Look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. And then later, nine chapters later in Genesis, several thousand years later in history, after the flood, God extended the range of things that human beings could eat. When he told Noah, all the animals of the earth, all the birds of the sky, all the small animals that scurry along the ground and all the fish of the sea will look on you with fear and terror. I have placed them in your power. I've given them to you for food, just as I've given you grain and vegetables. So it's okay to eat meat, according to God. In the Judeo-Christian worldview, food is, and always has been, a generous gift from God. We sort of take that for granted, but this is in great contrast to all other worldviews. In many traditional religions, food is central to human existence, certainly, but not because of our consumption of it, but because it is the role of human beings to produce food for the gods. It is human toil that produces food and the primary recipients of that food that comes from our toil is not us, we don't benefit from it, but the hungry gods. And this was explicitly taught in ancient Mesopotamian myths and it's implicit in almost all world religions. You're reminded of this constantly in Asian societies with their ubiquitous shrines 
constantly restocked with fresh food. This one is just outside a little abandoned village in uh, Lama Island in, in Hong Kong. And you can see the fresh food that I've, through my clever photo editing skills, have, have highlighted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's such a cool effect, isn't it? <laughs> Uh, that's a, it's actually a, um, it's some sort of um, incantation or, or something in Chinese. What would it say probably, Mabel? Probably something about some god or um, something like that, good luck or, yeah. There's so many things like that in China, I just ignore them. But some, a lot of them are just good luck or, or blessings or something like that. And sometimes they're a god's name. In contrast, the Jewish rituals of sacrifice were not to feed God, but rather to atone for their sins, the people's sins, and to purify both the people and their temple. So the Jewish sacrifices assured God's ongoing presence, while the pagan sacrifices appeased their gods and kept them docile. The Jews the Jews sacrificed to allow God into their presence because they wanted God's presence. The pagans sacrificed to, to sort of keep the gods away, to keep them calm and, and uh, not bothering them. Even in our modern mythology, the theory of evolution, food represents something radically different. In the theory of evolution, food is the domain of the brutal, fatal competition between individuals, like these little birds, which leads to the survival of only the fittest. Food is not a gift from a generous God, but a hard-won necessity that demonstrates my superiority to those less fit than me. So what do these different views of food do to those of us, in other words, all humans, who eat it. For those who hold to an evolutionary view, it's clear that extravagant diners are extravagant winners. If we share food, it's most likely an indication that those we share with belong to our biological family. We're just carrying our genes into the future. Of course, since we humans are rational creatures and not merely animals, we can use generosity to demonstrate our superiority. So for an evolutionist, there is absolutely no opportunity for humble gratitude at the meal table. Either we take it all ourselves because we're the winner and we deserve it, we're the fittest, although not for long if we eat like that, um, <laughs> or... or we share it as a, um, a grandiose demonstration of how fantastic we are. For those holding to traditional religions, diners have succeeded so greatly in their labours that they can eat from what's left over from the gods. So sharing food is for them yet again an indication of wealth or perhaps wisdom or great industry. And the sharer is right to be proud. In fact, partaking in another's generosity in this sort of culture is likely to make you obligated to the person that you receive generosity from. 
And so they can build their power base even further by sharing their food. What about for Christians? For Jews and Christians, though, food is a gift. And so the appropriate response is gratitude. And, the, and so sharing food with others is, is a natural outpouring of generosity from a grateful heart. We give as we have received. We share what we have had shared with us. And there's no way that we can build obligations or be proud. This is quite an old picture of a soup kitchen. So they've been around for a long time. And this, of course, is why we say grace before we eat. And this is a wonderful uh, visual representation of what we're doing when we say grace. We remind ourselves that the food we eat is not something that we can take credit for, even if we've grown it ourselves. And, and in my childhood, that was often actually true. In my family, we had grown the food and we might have known the name of that animal that was now on our plates. Um, <clears throat> I, I think that's a slightly humorous detail, so that's why I threw it in there. Um, sorry. No, the chooks didn't have names, but we might say, is this Bessie or, or, or um, Ma- yeah, May or something like that? Yeah. <laughs> and we'd have debates over it sometimes if we, you know, no, she was tougher than this. <laughs> so, um, or we might have prepared the food ourselves, which... Uh, which is still quite common in Australia, but much less so in the US, for example. But regardless of how the food got on the table, the source of the food was always and is always God. And it's important to remind ourselves to be grateful for that. Now, when I was a child, we had two versions of grace, the prayer that we say before our meal, in our house. And at every meal, one or another of these would be said, depending on whose turn it was to say grace. And we always sat in the same place and grace rotated around the table counterclockwise. So everyone had a turn, sorry, clockwise. Everyone had a turn once every two days because there were six of us. And we ate three meals a day. So when it was my parents' turn, they would say, for what we are about to receive, May the Lord make us truly grateful. Amen. And when it was our turn as kids, we would say, Thank you, God, for happy hearts, rain and sunny weather. Thank you, God, for this good food and that we are together. Amen. I really like this prayer. I, I, it's a childlike prayer, but, but it has, it's, it's simple gratitude and the... And, and, uh, the list of all the things that it's grateful for are just, just so wise, so spot on. So, what forms of grace have you used? Neil will pass the mic around so that you can share. What sort of grace did you say or do you say now before meals? Is a battery flat. Yep. 
Yeah, once once Neil's thinking. The battery slide is it. Yeah. Lord for giving us food. Thank you, Lord, for giving us food right where we are. Thank Amen. Okay, Mary, you got another one there? I don't know what kids No, thank you, Lord, for giving us food. Yeah, the Superman thing. Yeah, that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll have another go too. I can't remember. Um, friends for fellowship for food, we give thanks. Friends for fellowship for food, we give thanks. Yep, that's pretty simple, but covers a lot of bases. What my mum sometimes used to say was, "Some have meat that cannot eat. Some have meat that." Ah, I can't remember. Yeah, another go. We have meat and we can eat. So thank. So the Lord be thank, thank it. Ah, uh, yeah. There was one that came from the Gideons, I think. Yep, yep, I've heard that one too. Any others? What do you guys say? What do the best men say? Oh, when I was around, it was mostly um, just just worded however you like. It was yep. turned uh, our turns to do it like like you guys. But, um, there was a spontaneous. Place. Yeah, yeah, more, yeah. more spontaneous, less structured. But um, there was times when mum and dad had these, like even a song they would sing like that, like some other kind. Yeah. Yeah. They still do. They still do. <laughs> Tim. Um, if you've had food with me, you probably notice I kind of pretty repetitious. I always um, start with confession and then. Uh, Ask God to help us see all good things as coming from Him, including the food, and then also to invite Him to be at the table. Yep. Mary, Mel, you want to share anything? Oh, yep. Yeah. For what we are about to receive? Yeah. <clears throat> Any other? Sometimes you just say what? Because you add into it. Yeah. I've sort of made my own grace now as an adult, which you would have heard a number of times. It's sort of very slightly, but it's like Tim and follows a very similar theme. Any any other insights? No. Cool. So. <clears throat> I think I looked up, when I looked this up, Wikipedia actually had a page on grace and, and it had, um, it didn't have thank you God for happy hearts, but it had the, for what we are about to receive. Um, and it said that that was from the Anglican church, but it seems like a lot of Methodists said it as well. So, yeah, yeah, so that grace probably came with them. Now, Jesus was, of course, aware of the gracious nature of food and he exhibited that grace in the way that he shared his presence with others at feasts. So when he was alive, he, he, would, he would go to people's feasts. And he even made a point of that in his ministry. We read in Luke about Zacchaeus. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. 
Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He's gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. So Jesus recognised that by coming into fellowship with others, he was actually lifting them up. It's ironic that he says, come down so that I can lift you up. The Jews were accustomed to thinking that associating with dogs made you more dog-like, which was a bit different from Jesus. Jesus thought that if he associated with people, they'd be more like him. The Jews thought if they associated with people like Zacchaeus, who they thought of as a dog, that they would become more like him, more like a dog. So who's right? In a way, they're both right. What makes the difference is that Jesus is not just any Jew. He's the son of God. He's God himself. And so because he's God, Jesus' presence makes others holy. His presence is contagious. So would it then be unwise for us to eat with people who who are of doubtful moral character? That's, that's right. Jesus tells us to welcome strangers and, and, and to, to love our enemies. And how could we do that if we became immoral by associating with, associating with them? And of course, as Steve has said, the solution is Jesus coming into our lives. And, and that actually happens in a way, by another act of eating, one so important. We have a whole sermon in this series devoted to it, and we've just done it. So I'll only make one brief comment on this key act. In the Gospel of John, Jesus challenges his followers, saying, anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise that person at the last day. For my flesh is true food, And my blood is true drink. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Of course, when Jesus told his followers to eat his flesh and drink his blood, he he revealed the answer to our spiritual death. Just as God gives us physical food to sustain our physical lives, he gives us spiritual food, Jesus, to sustain our spiritual lives. When we share this food, which we act out physically every time we take communion, we share in the spiritual life of Jesus. And like any food, what goes in transforms us. We become a part of God's family. When we share in the spiritual life of Jesus, we don't need to worry about being made immoral by association with others. Jesus' blood not only protects us from corruption, it also makes us contagiously holy, spreading holiness to those around us. And so we are free to do as Jesus did and go out into all the world sharing the good news. So how? How can we do this? How can we eat with others? How can we share that part 
that crucial part of our lives with others and so share some part of Jesus' love with them. The first and most obvious method is pretty straightforward. It's eating with others. We can share meals with workmates. We can have a coffee with an acquaintance. We can have lunch with a customer. If someone asks for a few dollars for a meal, buy two meals and join them. Invite people to your home and cook for them, as Nicole was saying before. Despite being sick this week, I have been treated to a variety of meals by my family um, and friends. Some of them I had to take Nurofen to get through, but the fellowship made that worthwhile. I wish I'd been healthier so that I could have enjoyed the food more, but I enjoyed the company nonetheless. Hopefully I didn't infect anyone. That's my... Yeah, except for Tim. I got Tim. (laughs) At home... How about we sit down and share a meal instead of eating separately? Join, join us here at church, like tonight, when we have our fellowship dinner each week. I know Tim has set aside the time this week to join us, right? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Remember that the meal at a birthday party, at a graduation celebration, at a wedding or whatever, it's, it's not just a tiresome ritual. It's an opportunity to enjoy what that event is all about. People coming together and sharing as one. So take every opportunity that you have to share fellowship, to share Christ's love over food or drink. It's one of the joys that angels can only very rarely share Perhaps when they visited Abraham, a couple of angels got a chance, but that seems to be about it, unfortunately for them. So we should never take it for granted. But don't overindulge. That's a problem that we have in the West. We should be grateful for the plentiful food that we have in this nation, but we need to be careful not to overindulge. Remember that we look forward to the great feast at the end of time, celebrating the wedding of Jesus and us, the church. This feast is so important that saying no to the invitation is fatal. And that's what Jesus was talking about in that parable. Each of our little meals is a foretaste of that great feast, an opportunity to say yes to Jesus to let him in to come and dine with us. So eating is never simple, straightforward, lonely or meaningless. It's never something that you do just to shove fuel into your body. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, fill us with your presence And help us to remember that every time we place food in our mouths, we're enjoying a gift from you. Help us to share that humble enjoyment with those around us in a way that shares your love and your grace. We pray this in your name. Amen.